The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, I thank you for these words from the pen of your psalmist, making the same point in a, in a different way that we're going to see this morning in the book of Revelation making the same point in a different way through what Jesus said as recorded in John, apart from me you can do nothing. Making the same point repeatedly made throughout all of the Scripture. The one who will not make you his refuge, but trusts in his own strength, fails. But gladness and rejoicing comes to the one who says, you will do it waits for your name, and enjoys your powerful deliverance. Lord, I pray this morning that you would move on us, your people here, and conform us to this desire of yours. Repeated often, conform us to this desire that we would be a people who wait on you, who depend on you and not on ourselves. Lord, we, those of us here who are your people, we affirm with our mouths often that we are nothing, that you are everything. We affirm that we need you and your power and your strength. We affirm that we do not want to trust in ourselves, but we find ourselves lurching towards that often. And so I pray, graciously intervene. Spirit of God, would you run over the room here, run into each individual heart here, and change us. Father, would you make sure, please, would you make sure that your Spirit has His way in our hearts in the places that need it. Don't just tickle our minds with intellect, Lord. Please, don't just help us to understand some of the uniquenesses of this particular section of your scripture so that we know more information. And don't just leave us, please, Father, don't just leave us confirmed in what should be, but make us that. And for the right reasons. Make us a people dependent on you so that you would be honored and so that we would be changed to be like you to your honor. Not enabled to pursue some other end. Not empowered to pursue some secondary or tertiary or or even completely improper goal. Turn us towards you for your honor, for our change. To grow us in holiness, in Christ's likeness, and and understanding of and appreciation of eternally valuable things, you and your kingdom. That's why we need you. So help us, Father, this morning. By your Spirit's work in us, make that so, I pray. Make us to be 
these young trees sprouting up, rejoicing amongst the godly as we wait for your name. You're the one who will do it. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, for your grace. Rest on us heavy now, I ask, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the end of Revelation chapter 3, the final section of this this collection of the letters to the seven churches. We've been here for several months now looking at these first three chapters because in them we, we know that God speaks to us. The refrain at the end of every one of these letters is hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. God is speaking to us, all the churches, telling us some of what it means to be a church pleasing to Him. Now, certainly there is, there is more that we would want to know about how to be a, a Christ-pleasing church, but, but there's a lot here. We've, we've learned much so far. We saw in chapter 1 particularly, particularly the emphasis on the sovereignty of God. There is one true God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. All three persons are mentioned in chapter 1, but in particular, the emphasis on the sovereignty of God the Father and God the Son is what kind of rises out of that chapter. God is over all things that happens everywhere, including particularly hardship and suffering, an often repeated theme in these letters. We are going to face hardship it comes in different different ways, but tribulation is a part of life here, and God is sovereign over that and calls us, as we saw repeatedly, to patient endurance, to trusting Him, to holding tight to Him in the midst of all that hardship. So we've seen that. We've also seen last week, as we used a couple of the verses from the previous letter to launch us into looking at some of the material at the very end of the book, we, we saw where this is all headed to the coming new city. He is carrying you, Christian, He is carrying you to some place. A coming new Jerusalem. A glorious meeting of, of God and people to dwell together forever in wonder. We, we saw that it is coming. You can trust Him to bring it. That's, that is a reality coming to you. But as you're walking through life right now, one thing we cannot do is live without Him, independent of Him. Which brings us to this, our final letter, the letter to the church in Laodicea. Which might be, perhaps, the most well-known of the seven letters because there are a few verses in it that are very often quoted might be familiar with it for that reason. And it also, in some ways, uniquely, I think, connects to us. Which is not to say that the other letters do not. All of the letters speak to all the churches. We've learned from all of them. But there are some things of this letter that particularly resonate with us, an American, Western, wealthy, comfortable church. So perhaps it's familiar because of that. Perhaps it will speak to us uniquely this morning. We'll see. The ancient city of Laodicea was in the western part of what is now the country of Turkey. And this town was situated on a very important trade route, which created a bit of an oddity. Usually towns are founded where there are resources. Well, this one was situated on a trade route for trade route's sake, and that created an oddity. The city, for a city of its size, 
had next to no natural water supply. Unusual. Towns in the area around it, some in one direction had hot water springs, useful for therapeutic needs, even still to this day. And in other directions, towns had plenty abundant, cool, cold, refreshing drinking water. But Laodicea itself did not have enough water, and so it had to bring in water. It brought in the hot water over miles of aqueduct, and the water arrived in town lukewarm and full of all kinds of minerals and salts. The water had to be placed in jars and let to sit there because if it was consumed, it was undrinkable. You couldn't drink it. You couldn't consume it. If you did, it would have bad results. Not the ideal situation. But the town was there because it was on a trade route, and that made it filthy rich. So it was worth enduring the water thing. In fact, the town was so wealthy that when an earthquake destroyed the place 25 or 30 years before this letter was written, the city of Laodicea refused Roman government financial help for rebuilding and said, we'll take care of it ourselves. And they did, and by the standards of that day, built a marvelous city with with a number of quite prestigious buildings. And trade continued. Commerce was booming. The wool industry was significant. They were at the center of a of a large wool industry that produced some, some valuable black wool, which is a little bit unique. They had an interesting medical pass. There had been a doctor in the area some years before who had invented some some eye salve that was reputed to, to heal eye diseases, and so they had a lot of reputation and a, and a lot of business from that. They had all kinds of stuff there. Life was good there. And they had a church, too, which is about the best one can say of it. There was a church there also. And that's the problem. Because the church there, in the midst of this type of city, with with no persecution mentioned, there, there was no trouble there, a lot of money, a lot of things going its way. And the church, as often happens in such environments, had looked around at, it, at its situation and said, we have what we need, comma, unstated, so we don't need God. Not, not officially, not officially, but practically speaking. And he'd been left off somewhere in the past. There's a church there. And that's the best you can say of it. And I hope that what God says to us this morning from this passage and from as we think about it, may he, may he speak to us and convince us to repent and depend on Christ to give us life. I say repent because I think we identify with some of the things here. Maybe not every single one of us, maybe not every single church in America, but I think that we, many of us individually, and we by and large, can find some of ourselves here. And so may God call us to repent and to seek and depend on Christ to give us life. That's what we're going to work towards this morning. Let me read the passage. This is Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to the end. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, 
the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 3. I'm going to make a couple of observations from this passage. Here's the first one. Self-dependence makes us and Jesus sick. Self-dependence, Christian self-dependence, Christian depending on self, makes us sick and it makes Jesus sick. And I mean that in two different ways. Let's walk towards that in the passage. Verse 14 begins with the usual introduction of Jesus to the church. Pulls things out of the imagery of chapter 1 very often. But here, most of what he says is, is not in chapter 1. Now, there is a little bit. Verse 5 calls Jesus the faithful witness. That's here. But the bulk of it is, is different. He describes himself as the Amen, which is from Hebrew, from the Old Testament. We could see it, for instance, in, the, in Isaiah 65, 16, where your English Bibles read twice in that verse, the God of truth, but the Hebrew actually says the God of amen. Amen, truth, truthfulness, that's, that's what the word is about. And Isaiah's God is the God of amen, the God of truth, and here's Jesus is the amen. It's a strong statement about his deity. He's the amen, the true one. He's the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That is, the place that it all comes from, the source of it. It's Colossians 1 and and Colossae was a town very near to this town, so they probably had read the same letters. It's Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the one by whom all things were made, for whom and through whom all things are. Everything that's created comes from Him. God the Father decrees it, and it passes through, if you will, the, 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 uh, the contractor, Jesus, passes through Him, and it all comes from Him. He's the beginning of all the creation, which is to say, everything is His. Which sets us on a certain tone as we talk to a church that thinks, I have everything. He says, actually, I have everything. Everything that you have came from me. I'm the beginning of the creation. And I tell you the truth about yourself. 
And he returns to the church. And what he says about the church must have been difficult to swallow, pun intended. He has an assessment of this church, and three times he tells them, I know what you are, I know your works, three times. You're not hot or cold. Would that you were hot or cold, either one, but you're not either hot or cold. It's a big problem. Which in some circles, and perhaps you've heard this, has been commonly understood to be a metaphor for spiritual temperature, as in spiritually hot or spiritually cold. It's commonly taught. I think it's unlikely, but perhaps you've heard that. I think it's unlikely because, first of all, it's hard to understand why Jesus would prefer that a church be cold. I think there's a better a better understanding than the, the spiritual metaphor. The better understanding is found in the situation in which this city exists, the water situation. Hot water or cold water, both of them have uses, one or the other, but unfortunately you are too much like the water that actually arrives in your town. Lukewarm. Comes in over the aqueduct, and as is, you can't do anything with it. It's sit in jars and let it just sit and have all the stuff settle out of it and have it cool down. As it is, it's good for nothing. And in fact, if you drink it, it'll make you throw up. Which is the word that Jesus uses in verse 16. Because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Literally it reads, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. Which is pretty graphic. But it, it creates a picture, doesn't it? I, I interact with you. I look at you. I wish that you were one of these other ends of this thing. But because you're in the middle, because you're just like that water, just like that water, you make me sick. I'm about to hurl. Okay? We, we get that. Certainly there is displeasure there in that. But we need to understand it carefully. Because often we hear that, and the reason we need to understand this, so I'm going to try to help this sit in a certain context, because it matters for how you hear the correction later on. This is not, it is displeasure, certainly displeasure. This is hard stuff he's saying to them. But it is not spoken with an attitude of disgust and indignation. You make me sick. Get out of my face. Not that. You make me sick, yes. I am sickened by you, but not indignation and disgust, but rather gut-wrenching. Literally, gut-wrenching. Discomfort and remorse and ugh. Deep sorrow. The passage points us in that way. Look, verse 19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Jesus loves these people. He is not disgusted with them and wanting them. Those whom I love. This is hard. It's discipline. It's reproof. Spoken in love. And also, verse 17, when he analyzes their situation, he calls them wretched and pitiable. 
an object worthy of pity. Like one would be if you looked at someone and found them poor, blind, and naked. So Christ is sick here, but it is the sickening. This is the context of the sickening. It is the sickening of a lover who finds his beloved alarmingly ravaged and dragged down into a state of destruction. Less than what should be. A couple of examples. Think, for instance, about American soldiers in World War II who come upon the concentration camps. Not because they're angry at the victims in the concentration camps. Because there's something here that's that's gut-wrenching. Or to make it a little more personal, perhaps, and to capture the active role, because the victims in the concentration camps didn't have anything to do with it, the churches had something to do with it. So perhaps it's a little more like a parent might feel upon finally finding that runaway child. But when you find her, find her on the street, addicted to meth, living in squalor, body broken and sold just to survive, and you're sickened by it. Now some parents would be angry, but most parents would be grieved in a deep sense. This one I love, wretched and pitiable. The, the father looks at his child or the groom looks at his bride and says, this is not what should be, but this is what has become. Ugh. And the tragic irony is that this faithful and true witness has to testify to the reality of the situation to the bride who does not see it herself. Verse 17, you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I have everything. I don't need anything. Clueless. There's the, there is the, the loving Jesus looking at his bride or the loving father looking at his child saying, Oh, what? What? This is great. Total disconnect. We have it good, and the Father is grieved. Sickened by our sickness. And the church is indeed sick. And this, we need to listen to this carefully and think about it, because this is where it might well apply to us as a church corporately or to you personally. There's a lot of analogy here. A lot of these things are are connected to the situation where they were, the the uh, the clothing, the eye salve, and whatnot. But don't but don't miss the the realness of it in the the historical setting. He says they are lukewarm, connecting it to the water. But essentially, what he is saying is that as is, you are worthless. Which is not to say there is no intrinsic value in it. Just saying that that as is. There's there's nothing here that's right. You think you are rich and powerful and well-clothed and wise and insightful and so are strong Christians with a lot to give and therefore don't need anything, verse 17. That in fact you are none of that and are quite the opposite. You are poor, blind, and naked. 
You are nothing. You have nothing. You are able to do nothing. You understand nothing. And you need everything. Everything that is of value, you need. How pitiable. Church. So often churches and Christians, us, question mark, you, question mark, in places like ours, facing little or no real trouble, with plenty of money, meeting the budget, surrounded by competency and capability, buildings that are just fine, and houses that are just fine, and cars that are just fine, and and health that's pretty decent, and medical care that's better. So often we and our pride think that we have it under control. And ourselves are just fine. We think it's come from our own hands perhaps, but certainly there's, there's no pressing sense of need. That's all right here. How many of us are Laodiceans and don't even see the problem? Is, is it the case that your personal or your family or your churches, that's all of us, existence is, is just right on track, going along just as it should be? Yeah, the little bumps and whatnot, but, but everything works out eventually. Or if it doesn't work out eventually, you have a good deal of confidence that it will because you're a capable person. We are capable people. If I have to cash in the savings bond, okay, but it's there. Is, is that you? And perhaps the way to put this, are you mildly, consistently irritated that I keep attacking you? Because, Steve, come on, things are, things are fine if you would just stop saying they aren't. I would say I said that for a little bit of humor. I have had that conversation, folks. Explicitly or implicitly. You're so negative. Because you find it negative because what you are saying is, I don't have any need. And I'm saying, yes, you do. That's, that's the negativity piece. It might be that you're irritated with me being negative because you're more Laodicean than you realize. It could also be because I'm simply negative. It, it could be. I am a glass half-empty person. But don't assume that that's the problem without looking. You need Christ personally, intimately, every moment of every day, more than you need air to breathe. That's true. You need Jesus. But perhaps not for the reasons that you think. You do not need Jesus to make life work out. 
Think about this. Life was working out for them. You don't need Jesus to make life work out. You, know, you don't even need Jesus for spiritual things. You don't need Jesus for evangelism effectiveness. Well, obviously you do. You don't need Jesus for effective ministry power of, of discipleship. So that what you say goes well when you're preaching or, or teaching in a Bible study or a Sunday school class. We need Jesus because we need to be different. Changed in here in order to rightly honor God. We need to be changed in the heart. For His honor, for our everlasting good, absolutely. For His honor, to know Him and to reign with Him, we must be changed. We must develop a taste in here for that which lasts and a distaste for sin. We must grow in conformity to Christ so that we will properly image Christ in this, His creation. This change must happen in us and we are to be about that happening in others. That's what's going on. That's the task. The task is not... And, and okay, there is some, there is clearly some good in what I'm about to say, but the problem is when this gets elevated to, to the place of primacy, it becomes all wrong. The task is not to consistently provide a platform on which your kids can grow up, succeed in college, get married, have nice jobs, so that they can consistently provide a platform on which the, your grandkids can grow up, etc., etc. That's not what's going on. Now, there's good in that, yes. But that's not what's going on. We need to be conformed to the image of Christ, changed to be worshipers of Him. And so much of that agenda of platform, kids growing up, is detached from that. Can worship be put in that? Absolutely, it should be. Please do. But it need not necessarily be a part of that, and for many of us it isn't. Many of us, we are living just like our neighbors with some Jesus tacked on. Thank you. We are called to what this life is about is a life lived before God, enthralled with God, for God and His glory in this the world of God. It is all about God. How many of us live such Godward lives? How much of our mourning is over our lacking of Godwardness? How much of your weeping is over the shallowness of your, of your faith and dependence in Christ-like holiness? How much of your prayer life is for the fruit of the Spirit to, to flourish and grow in you? 
many of us and many of our churches are sick. And we are not aware of it often because our circumstances, our capabilities, and especially our money keep the wheels turning just fine. We'll meet the budget next month, whether it be our personal family budget or the church budget. And we'll meet the month after that. And things will go on. And it's easy to think it's okay. And it's not even the game we're playing. We're winning the wrong game. Is that you? Unaware of, perhaps, or unconcerned about those sorts of Godward needs. And prone to trust in yourself to meet all the other needs that your non-Christian neighbor trusts in him or herself to meet and does very well. We're sick and we don't even know it. And God is sickened by that because he knows full well he made us to be more than that. So, we move to the second point. Humble dependence on Jesus is what we need to be whole and strong. Humble dependence on Jesus is what we need to be whole and strong. We all have a great need, and when things are going very well in in the world's perspective, we have that great need. When things are not going very well, we have the same great need. What varies is our awareness of it, perhaps, but it's the same need. We need Jesus. Humble dependence on him to draw from him healing life. Verse 18, he says, Oh, my people, sick of soul, because you have bought a bill of goods from the world. Oh, my people, sick of soul, I counsel you, I advise you, I give you some direction here. Come buy from me. Come to me, all you who are weary and broken, blind and naked. Buy from me and you will be truly rich. You will be clothed and no longer shamed, and you will see and no longer be blind. Now, obviously, he does not mean that literally. Jesus doesn't sell gold. And you can't get clothes from him. He's communicating the alternative to I need nothing type of self-dependence, by turning it and saying, Christ dependence, a humble turning to him that says, I need help. I'm coming to you because I need. I've, I've been shopping over there for my whole life and have found that I still need. And so I'm going to come to you. Please, you give. You provide. Apart from you, Jesus, I can't do anything that I need to do. I need help. That's a humility that the Bible repeatedly said, says invites the grace of God. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The Bible says that numerous times. And what a gracious loving God he is. Think, think he's still dealing with the people here. He's still dealing with the people who have 
He talks to them. He gives us counsel and advice and says, the, the store's still open. Come. I'm still knocking. Answer. Come to me. I counsel you. Come and find what your sick soul needs. Come and buy, to paraphrase the words of Isaiah 55, buy without cost. He sells to you for free, you know. It's your dad's store. Who pays their dad? He sells to you for free because he has already given you rights to all the wealth of the kingdom. It was not available to you when you were still in your sin, but he saved you from your sin. You know the story. God came to earth. Not just to satisfy some archaic legal code. First Peter tells us that God came to earth and went to the cross to bring you to himself. God the Son, the righteous one, died for unrighteous ones to bring unrighteous ones to God. Bring you into the store, if you will. To give you access to the unfathomable, unsearchable riches of Christ. Those are words that Ephesians uses to describe great treasure. Now, the very fact that they are unfathomable means it's going to be hard to fathom them. I did well in English. So what exactly does that mean? I don't know exactly. But I know that the treasure of Christ, the treasure of the glory, the treasure of the grace has to be good. And he says, I have already removed the wrath of God off of you so that communion with God is Yours. And I don't mean, he's, he's expressly reminding us of, I don't mean just like one day after you die. He's reminding us of, right now, come to me right now. Commune with me today. You will find my grace available for free to you today. Put it a different way, what he's inviting you to is to come and experience your birthright. To come and live experiencing the riches that are Jesus. The treasure that is Jesus. To come and experience, let me develop this one a little bit, what it means to be clothed in a white robe and no longer ashamed. Now, the white robe, he's contrasting a little bit with the, with the black wool of their environment, saying, you get something different from me. But a white robe also signifies righteousness in the Scriptures. Come and find out what it's like to be clothed in a righteousness that covers your shame. So much of our lives, think about this, so much of our lives revolve around us avoiding shame. Maybe you don't use the word shame. Maybe you use the word embarrassment or a sense of inadequacy or a sense of vulnerability. Some of that 
shame is, is quite appropriate because it's the shame over our own sin. Some of the shame, though, is the shame that others put on us from their sin as they steal our dignity. Commit crimes and sins against you and you feel ashamed for it. That's wrong. They should feel ashamed, but you often do as the victim. But even from our youngest days, the first time any kid steps into a sports arena and fails, shame shows up. And then a fear of failing the next time. You wear an article of clothing and somebody laughs at you. Shame shows up. You trip over a crack in the sidewalk. You know some people, we trip over cracks and we look back at the crack as if it's the crack's fault. It was there. I'm trying to pass off the little bit of humiliation that I just endured. I'm dealing with shame. Christ says, when you deal with shame, what you attempt to do is... Find some big leaves and knit them together. And in your own power, cover up. Would you please come to me and be clothed? Now, you stand righteous in my eyes, but I'm asking you to come and live it, to experience it right now. And stop turning to your own means and methods that inevitably are sin and inevitably don't work. Come! I'm going to clothe you and cover all your shame and give you eyes to see things as they are. To see spiritual realities, to value what is valuable and to disdain which, that which is disdainful. He's inviting, advising, counseling us out of our sickness and we can not get there in our own power. You don't, and you can't. It only comes from Him. Only. So give up and turn to Him. How? Well, verse 19, zeal and repentance, which is to say, zeal, constant fighting earnestness in the struggle because it's going it's, this thing's going to come up every single day till you die particularly the, the the more capable you are and the more resources you have at your disposal this is going to come up a whole bunch it's going to sit right there in, in your lap the temptation to say i'm okay i have it under control I can make my life work. I, I can make the church work. I can make my family work. I have the capabilities. That's going to come up every single day that you die. And it requires zeal to grab that thing, that temptation, and drag it back into the living room or the dining room, perhaps, where Jesus sits with you, which leads to the second one about repentance. Because all of that, that daily battle, has to start... Now, don't contemplate this for a week or so. Now, repent, he says. Which means turn. Repent. He is speaking, that is, he is knocking. Do you hear it? Verse 20 is not a verse about evangelism. 
It's a surprise, perhaps, because verse 20 is used commonly in evangelistic circles. Jesus is speaking to a church. And he's speaking right in the flow of thinking here. I'm calling you, church, to repent. I'm knocking at the door. Turn. Open the door, and what will happen is table fellowship again. I'll sit down, and we'll eat together. Together. He will come to you. Which is one of the lies sometimes fed to us by Satan. You've stiff-armed him, and now you think he'll come in and sit down and eat with you? Now, he really means that sick as in, get out of my face, you disgusting. That's not, no, that's not what he means. He means, I will come and sit down at the dinner table with you, and we will eat together. That's fellowship in a, a Bible context. He wants communion with you. So repent, turn to him, and say, Please, here I am, have me. Which might look something like this. Let me describe what this might look. Prayerfully, if if it applies to you, prayerfully you sit even at the moment feeling a twinge of conviction. Christ saying to you, where have you been? Been living on your own. Where have you been? And you, you feel that sense of conviction, so I say, act right now. Don't put it off until later this afternoon. Repent where you sit right now. Jesus, I'm sorry. Please have me. Please forgive me. And then, at that moment, and from that moment on, begins the, the fight of zeal. Which for me this last week took place a couple days in Psalm 52 that I read at the beginning of the worship service. I read that on purpose because I found it interesting that in my course of just reading through the Psalms, this week I come to this one, which has, you will recall, a proud, wicked man, God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. I thought, huh, that's interesting, them preparing this passage. A man who trusted in the abundance of his riches. Look where that took him. This is how I'm fighting this. So this is the the zeal part of the fight. I'm reading through the Bible, and I'm engaging with it. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. He must do it. And when He does it, thankfulness rises up in me. 
He does it because he's a God of love for me. He does it. Not me. I I can't. Woe is me if I think I've got this. He will do it. And I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. So I read that and I say, God, I find in myself constantly the temptation to trust my own abilities and riches to be that man above. I don't want to be that. I want to be the one below in verses 8 and 9, the green olive tree, trusting you to do it, waiting for your name. So would you please change me? Would you make this real in me? I'm, I'm praying that. I'm, I'm asking him to grab this. And that's the part right there where if, if you've seen that, that, um, that far side cartoon with the guy with all of the equations on the bulletin board, uh, on the chalkboard, and then a miracle happens, and the answer? He says, I think you need to be a little more detailed in step two right there. This is the, this is the vague step two. And then a miracle happens. And God takes this and creates in me a waiting. As I'm reading this and asking Him to do it and repenting of the particular places in my life where I see myself not waiting, then a miracle happens and waiting comes. A new confidence that He will do it I cannot and need not. Now, if you do that once and nothing happens, that's where the zealous part comes in because you've got to go do it again rather than just give up. But the good promise from this passage is that Jesus says, I will come in. I will sit down with you and eat with you. He will. He wants communion with you more than you do. That's why He's knocking. So Christian, soul-sick Christian, open the door. Repent and say, Jesus, have me. Will you please open my eyes to the riches that are Jesus, to the righteousness that is mine in Him, to all the spiritual truth that's, that's Bible's full of that I don't often see and rarely live by. Do that work in me, please. And beg Him for it, zealously. Repent and depend on Christ to give you life every day. He will come in. He will sit down. He will feed you and clothe you and give you sight. He will heal you because He loves you. Go to Him. Let me pray. Father, we are in need of that and then a miracle happens step. 
We are in need of you to make us aware of what's actually going on in life, to make us aware of who you are, to win our hearts to yourself. We are in need of that from you. And so I ask, please give it. Please pour it out on my friends here. Pour it out on me. Conform us to your image. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. But you can do all things in us. And so I just ask you, would you come and draw near to particular individual men and women, teenagers, kids? Draw near, I pray. Show yourself. Win us to you for our good, for the good of your church, for the spread of the gospel to your honor. I pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.